All right, we have been studying evangelism by Jesus, uh, and I know that a lot of you have enjoyed that, and we're going to continue to do that for the remainder of this season. Um, and so uh, today's lesson, Jesus is again going to really uh, shock the religious world, um, and he's going to explain why the heart of the Pharisees is not the heart of God. All right, and so you understand that the Pharisees were the religious leaders, the religious elite. Uh, they were people who dedicated their lives to the law, to teaching the law, uh, to trying to adhere to the law in every aspect of their life. Uh, but the problem was that they began to believe that the law saved them, that if they lived according to the law, that they would get to be with God. Uh, and the problem was that they didn't understand that no amount of adherence to the law would ever bring you to God. Nobody can adhere to the, to the law. So the reality is that unless you, you bow in submission to God, accept Jesus Christ, uh, the law is of no consequence to you. The only thing the law was designed to do, the only thing that it was designed to do was to make you recognize you needed God. You needed a savior. You couldn't live like this. And, but the Pharisees didn't do that. They, they got to the position where they were so focused on the law that they looked down uh, on other people and divided the class. There's chairs in the back there if you need them. So, so uh, Jesus is making this point very clear. And so as we speak to, to people, as we speak to people about their need for Jesus, uh, I, I, you're going to come across some people who are going to tell you, well, I, I follow the commandments. I follow the commandments. I've lived a, a good life. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. And you have to, in love, be able to demonstrate to them that no amount of following the commandments means that you've perfected the commandments. Nothing. You can never get to God by merely saying you're following the commandments. It's the only when you have that brokenness of heart that, that you recognize that without, without God, you are nothing. I want you to turn, as we start this, to John 14, a um, very important passage. I will speak on this on every funeral that I do. John 14, verse 12. This is Jesus. I tell you the truth. Um, let, let me make sure I have the right verse on that. Hold on a second. John 14, verse 6. I'm sorry. Verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you don't know any other verse in the Bible, that's the verse to know. Okay? You got that? If you don't know any other verse in the Bible, that's the verse. That's the verse. That encapsulates the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. That's the essence of what we have to deliver to the lost world. So when somebody tells you, I'm a good person, uh, but I don't, re I don't believe in Jesus, okay? I think there's a thousand ways to get to God. I think I can work my way to God. God will recognize me as a good person. Uh, I, do, I, I do helps. Uh, I give money to the poor. And you want to be able to say to them, read this verse. Listen what God himself said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can I get an amen? Amen. What part of no one don't you understand? Okay, it's that simple. No one. 
No exceptions. There's no other way. This is the only way. So get all these other ideas out of your head. This was the problem with the Pharisees. They were tied up with the law, and the law had grown and grown and grown, and uh, you know because there was man-made laws as well. And then they added legalism onto it, and then it had cultural attachments as well. And all of that now weighed like an 800-pound gorilla in Israel. And so Jesus Christ walks out, the savior of the world, and they're blinded to them because they're worshiping these laws. All right. And that's the extent of what we find today in much of the world. All right. So when we talk about evangelism, I want to say, we're not just talking about evangelism to the lowest rung of people. We're talking about evangelism to the highest rung as well. People who may look at themselves as leaders, cultural leaders, all right, even religious leaders. Let me tell you something. If you're a religious leader and you're not accepting Jesus Christ, then you're not going to heaven. All right, let's understand that. Your denomination is not taking you to heaven, okay? It's Jesus Christ that's taking you to heaven. And, and, and so this is, we have been told repeatedly that this is the case. Take a look at Acts chapter four while we're on this, because this is important as I make it a prelude to our study today. Acts chapter four. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Well, there it is. There it is. Again, absolutely clear. Jesus alone. Nothing but it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Not Jesus plus works. Not Jesus plus church membership. And I'm not against church membership. You need to belong to a church. You need to belong to a community of believers. This is where you go and pray for each other. But that is not getting you to heaven. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Uh, and so let's, let's understand this. Uh, and so uh, we've studied this issue in the past, but we're going to study it again today because we're going to see Jesus uh, really articulate it uh, and address this problem, the heart of the Pharisee, the heart of so-called religious people, the heart of people that think that they're good, that they don't need a savior. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter nine and beginning with verse nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. By the way, you got to want love the power of Jesus. Here's a guy who's a tax collector, and we've already discussed where those guys are on the cultural food chain. They're at the bottom, reviled, uh, but obviously he had been convicted. He had obviously seen Jesus. Jesus walks by and says, follow me. That's it. Right? No theology 101, follow me. God gets up and follows him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, quote unquote, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And by the way, I hope that the people in your church will say the same thing about you. I hope they'll say the same thing about you. Why does Joe spend all that time hanging around with sinners, with people who are outside of the church, or outside who are on the, on the, on the sidewalk, uh, adulterers, slanderers, all right? Uh, people who, who may have gone to jail. Uh, yeah, and I'll even say it, homosexuals. Why, do they, why does he seem to bring those kind of people uh, around? And why does he hang around with them? 
Uh, and in verse 12, Jesus says this, and here's the answer. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the point of this verse is pretty clear that everybody needs a doctor. You understand? Everybody needs a doctor. And when it comes to spiritual things, the entire world needs a spiritual doctor. It needs Jesus. But there are people who think that they don't need a doctor. And those are people who are not going to listen to God, who are not going to accept Jesus Christ, because they're going to go on their own way. They're very self-satisfied. They're very self-righteous, very self-centered. They look at others and they look down on them. I despise those people. I can't stand to be around those people. I don't want to hang around those people. I don't even like the fact that the church invites those people in. I don't want to sit next to them. Oh, that's a godly spirit. That's a godly spirit. And so God is speaking to our hearts today and telling you about how God looks at your conduct and, and what God wants of, of, of you. And so you can see this, that Jesus has come to save the sick. And the sick means those who recognize they need a savior. And the problem here, the problem that we see when we study the Pharisees is, is that they may have started off good hundreds of years before, but over time, uh, as, as they've increased these man-made rules, they have gotten so caught up in the rules themselves that they've lost the very mercy of God. The very element of God is mercy. We have called to give mercy to the world. That's what Jesus said. That's why Jesus spends his time with people who are broken. It's because Jesus has a heart. Jesus is merciful. And so those who think they are well have no need of a physician. Uh, but th those who believe themselves to be righteous will never listen to Jesus' offer of mercy to sinners. They don't need to listen to Jesus. Such people need to be persuaded they are sick. And that your job, as God gives you the grace to do this, is when you come across people like this in love to begin to demonstrate that we all are sick. Okay? We all are sick. We're never self-satisfied. We look in the mirror, we see Jesus looking back at us. Um, and so as we saw in our earlier studies on this same issue, uh, grace is always present in Jesus. He's, he, it's always there in everything that he does and everything that he says. Look at how he handled the story of the, the wealthy young man. And it says he loved him when he said, I've, I've followed these commandments my whole life. And he, Jesus loved him. And Jesus then said, only one thing you lack. Well, you know, Jesus knew there were a thousand things he lacked. A thousand things he lacked, but look at the love of Jesus. One thing you lack, sell all your goods, give to the poor and follow me. Ooh, ooh, that's a, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. And you see that and even with the older brother, we've seen, we've seen again, God speaking to us, Jesus speaking to us about the older brother. How many older brothers do you have in your family? How many older brothers do you have in your church? And I'm pleased that when I look out in this group, I, pretty much everybody has a church. You're all going to church. But the question I have is, how many older brothers are in the church? People that look down on the lost. People that look down on, on those people that are needy, all right? Uh, and who are self-satisfied with where they are. Look at themselves as the religious elite. Let me break this to you right now. There are no religious elite. None. 
I don't care who you are, and I'm starting with me. I don't care how you preach. I don't care how big your church is. I don't care how tall that pulpit is. There are no religious elite. And Billy Graham would have been the first to tell you that. You understand? It's because when God calls you and allows you the privilege and the gift of speaking, the first thing he does is he gives you that mirror and you see Jesus looking at you all the time. And I told you that when I get up here, I'm preaching to me. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. And if something bounces off me and hits you and it's good, well, then so be it. But I'm preaching to me. I want you to make understand that. So there are no religious elite. That is why I do not believe uh, in the culture of personality, in the in the in the, uh, the religiosity of personality, where we look at certain people and we elevate them and we elevate them and we elevate them. We don't elevate anybody. We elevate Jesus Christ. Listen, I, I'm glad you respect me. I'm glad you love me. It means a lot, but I'm just like you. There's no difference between me and you, none whatsoever. It's just God has called me and given me a gift, but I'm just like you. I suffer just like you. I'm persecuted just like you. I'm tempted just like you. There are no religious elite, all right? Let's understand this. There are no religious elite. And if you start hanging around with people or in a church that says that they are religious elite, well, let me tell you something. You might want to look for another place. All right? All right? You might want to look for another place. All right? Because there are no religious elite. And you see this. You see how God disdains it when you saw what the older brother did and how God God did that and repudiated. Uh, the problem is that... The, that that there are people who do not see that they are sinners. They do not need to, they do not realize that they need to repent and put their trust in Jesus. And that is why Jesus is teaching them the law so that they will become aware of their sinful hearts and their desperate need for repentance and mercy. That's why you study the law because then you go, oh, I can't, I can't do this. Oh, I, I can't do that. That's good. That's the first step. You can't do it. You're right. You can't do it. That's why I go back and repeat to you over and over again, Leviticus 16, when you see the rules that God had for what the Jewish high priest had to do on the day of atonement, the day to go into the Holy of Holies, all of the sacrifices, all the ritual washings, all of the, all of the animals that had to be slain, the blood ankle deep, all right, all of these issues in order to walk into the holy of holies. Why? Because God is holy, holy in a way that we can never come to understand, holy in a way that is so far outside our human understanding. And so the only way God has allowed us to become in the presence of God himself to someday be in heaven is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. That's it. There is no other answer. And so that's what this is about, evangelism by Jesus, understanding this. And so I want you to be prepared. God wants you to be prepared, not just to take those people who are sinning on the low run, the physical sins, those people who are, who are clearly struggling with drugs or alcohol, or those people who may have been in jail in so many ways, all right? Those, those people are suffering from various sexual deviations. God wants you to love them, embrace them, to bring them into the family of God. Uh, and that's what this is about. There is a desperate need for repentance in this country. 
a desperate need. You wonder why Washington is the cesspool it is? What would happen if all of a sudden everybody in Washington came to understand that they were sinners? What would happen? Overnight, overnight this country would change. Overnight this country would change, all right? But instead, we elevate ourselves. We elevate the way we think. We are the elite. We are the righteous. We are the religious. And we are so far outside of the will of God that it's not funny. And so look also now to look at Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And Jesus is now going to delve further, all right? He's going to delve further. He's going to demonstrate that there are no religious elite. And this is the problem with those people who think they are. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. And by the way, I'm going to stop on that because... I think that's an important consequence of being a Christian. I am confident that I am saved. I am confident that if I were to die right now, the next second I would be with Jesus Christ. Amen? And I hope you have that confidence. And if you don't, come up and see me afterwards, and we'll take care of that. I am confident of that. But I am not confident in my righteousness. You understand the difference? I am a sinner. I am a sinning machine. I, I had a, a, a woman who was uh, misguided, uh, who had heard me preach like this and said to me in a series of notes, I don't understand it with you. What part of the Holy Spirit's power don't you have so that you stop sinning? I said, I, I really, I said, you, you've really failed to understand the teachings and the Bible. Until you put dirt on me, I will continue to sin. All right? Study the life of David. All right? What part of this don't you understand? The human condition is sin. We are sinning machines. It is but for the grace of God that he has saved us and sees us as righteous. Not that you are righteous, but he sees you through Jesus. And you are attached to the body of Jesus. But let's understand something. You don't have confidence in your righteousness. I'm not confident that I'm a righteous man. I'm confident that I'm a sinner. I said, to, I said to some of the guys this morning, and they left, I said, you know, in terms of some of the, the events that happen in life and your blood pressure goes up when you're confronted by people who just aggravate you, that I have said, Jesus loves you, but I don't. <laughs> Can I get an amen on that? You know what I'm talking about. You understand it. Right? We're, we're struggling. We're struggling in this life, okay? We all have personalities and characteristics and warts and flaws. And every step that we take, God is with us and God is giving us his grace. But it's a battle, all right? We're not confident in our righteousness. We're confident that we're sinners. But we know through the grace of Jesus Christ, he has redeemed us. And so here we'll go back to the verse at study here, verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men were up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I mean, that, Jesus has basically split the world up into one side, the, the very religious elite, the other side, the very bottom of the barrel. So you get a sense of, of who the, who's on the bottom of the barrel. It's tax collectors, all right? The Pharisee stood up in the temple, and prayed about himself. And I, and I love this. This is, the, this is the, the prayer. This is a real prayer. Look at this prayer, all right? Look, look at this prayer. God, 
I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. There it is. There it is. Now, now you're laughing, and I want you to laugh, but I want you to understand something, that much of the world thinks like this. They don't articulate it. They're too sophisticated to articulate it. But they think this way, all right? And here you have in Jesus. I mean, this is what's beautiful about Jesus. He blows it up. He blows it up, and he mocks you for it so that you understand. I thank you, God. I'm not like him. Thank you, Father, for giving me this grace that I have this exalted place, that I'm a good man, that I give to the poor. I'm not like the adulterer. Instead, be on your face. Talk to God about the fact that you are a sinner, lost. And so look at what Jesus says then. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, Lord, what a powerful set of verses as Jesus really tells you what it's like, what God looks for. And, and what I like about this, again, notice how Jesus simplifies the aspect of salvation. All right? There's no theology 101. There's no recitation of all the evil things that I've done. There's not a public testimony getting up and have to talk about to 100 people of all the things that I've done. Instead, this man couldn't even stand to be around the other people. He was ashamed to even be where the Pharisee was. He was ashamed to even be near the temple. And so he stood off at a distance. Why? Because his heart was broken. His heart was broken, and I pray your hearts are broken. Every day that your hearts are broken, recognizing who you are and what God has done for you. Really, I, my wife often hears me say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. And she'll say to me, why do you keep saying that? I say it because I need it, because I recognize who I am. I recognize what I would do if not for the grace and mercy of God, where I would go, what thoughts would come into my head. And I am bowed before God, submitting to him, recognizing that that's the human condition. And that's your role. You have to go out and tell other people about this. They need to know this story. And so you see this. He couldn't even stand near the temple. He was so brokenhearted. All right, so brokenhearted, and he, he could not even look up to heaven. He was so down uh, on, on where he was, so broken, uh, but God saw his heart. You see, God sees your heart. God knows that if you're broken and you need a Savior, and God reaches out across eternity for you, and he sees that, uh, and he, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That encapsulates salvation, folks. You understand? Those five or six words encapsulates what Jesus wants you to say. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Isn't that what the thief at the cross said? Isn't that what the thief on the cross said? Lord, have, remember me this wet day in your, par in your paradise. 
understand what that means. It means an acknowledgement of God, the sovereignty of God, and the recognition of my brokenness. And that I cannot address my brokenness. And that only through the mercy and grace of God can my brokenness be addressed. This is what God wants. This is what evangelism is about. This is the nature. This is nature of what God is teaching us about evangelism. And so Jesus is teaching us here about the problem with the Pharisees. The first problem is pride. And pride, it was the first sin. All right? Pride was what took Lucifer from right next to the throne of God to the pit of the earth. Pride. Pride. All right? And if you think that you don't have to struggle with pride, then get on your knees and ask God to show you wisdom. All right? Because pride is there in every aspect of our lives. Pride. And so here's the Pharisee filled with pride. Uh, and he's there and he reflects on his life and he likes what he sees. Oh, yeah. I like what I see. And I would say this, as we walk with Jesus, and every day you, you pray and you study, uh, I hope, really, you don't necessarily like what you see. I understand that you're walking with God, but I would hope instead that you would say, Lord, I have flaws. I need to be stronger. I need more mercy. Lord, I need more justice. Uh, I need more love. Because that's exactly how God wants you to be. That's, what this, uh, that's why we study. Look, I understand I'm with a room full of godly men, people that love God, but I'm going to tell you something. That doesn't mean that you're righteous, all right? It means that you know the way. Now the question is, are you going to walk in the way, all right? And you're going to lead other people on the way. Are you going to be a magnet for Jesus Christ? And so this problem with pride is enormous. Here he is standing in the temple and denoting the difference between himself and people he sees as the enemies of God. Oh, yeah. The churches are filled with people like this. And some of them are in the pulpits. All right? Sorry to say this. Some of them are in the pulpits. All right? When you, get, when you have this attitude of superiority... All right, listen, I'm lucky that I can speak like this because I'm in a conference room miles away from churches, all right? I'm not tied up into any specific denomination. God has given me the freedom to say this thing. This is not church. And you can recognize it if you come here every week. You recognize it because God can pour some wisdom into our hearts that maybe would not be able to be possible into some church conditions. And so you understand this, it's pride. Pride is awful, Pride will bring you down. Pride in yourself, pride in your status, pride in what you have accomplished. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm smart. I've worked hard. Look what I have done. Oh, let me tear this barn down and bring another, build a bigger one. Right? Let me build a bigger barn. Yeah, that's right. You know that story, right? The next day he was dead. You understand? I mean, really. I am, I, I, you know, God has given me a, uh, an incredible position in life where I can see a lot of people like that, all right? Even where I live, you know the section of town that I live in, and I can see it. People who are so obsessed with the acquisition of possessions and exaltation of themselves, lifting themselves up, not recognizing that they are lost that they are sinners, that their prideful condition has given them blinders. God is calling us to give this message to a world. This is what evangelism is about, folks. It's not just about passing out pamphlets on the street. You understand? 
It's about showing people what God's will is for their life and showing people, demonstrating what God's law is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. You want the law of God? You want the law of God? I just gave it to you. And so Jesus is pointing out that this prayer by the Pharisee is not an acceptable prayer. Praying about how great you are, about how elevated you are, how elite you are, is not a prayer that is acceptable to the God of the universe. Uh, and, And congratulating yourself is not acceptable to the God of the universe. Don't sit there and talk about your righteousness or your devotion or the money that you've given away. God doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to hear it. He wants to hear that you are broken in your heart, that you recognize that you're lost, that without the grace of God, you would be outside of his will and you would never have a chance to be in heaven. And so there you see see an understanding of Jesus speaking frankly on this issue. Who is justified? That's who's justified. That sinner, that so-called tax collector sinner went home justified to God. He was saved and the Pharisee did not. He was not. Uh, And so you see that the sinner, on the other hand, is this tax collector. He stands off by himself, some distance away from the sanctuary. He can't even walk into the sanctuary. He does not consider himself worthy to be there. He does not presume even to lift his eyes to heaven. He can't even lift his eyes to heaven. He is so broken. His prayer is a passionate cry to God for mercy for himself. He is acutely aware of his standing before God. And cries out for mercy. And God, Jesus says, God justifies this man. That's the economy of God, folks. All right? It's very different from the economy uh, from man. And so you see this. uh, and, And you see the nature of pride. You see the danger of pride. And how really, how... How it, 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 it metastasizes in our life uh, and really contaminates everything that we do. Now, I want to teach you something now and, and tell you that the Pharisees did not understand one big concept about God and that God was mercy. God defined mercy. That was the very essence of God from the beginning. And that was the part of God that they ignored. When you go back into the Old Testament, it becomes very clear. But for God, it was all about mercy. Um, and if you go back and you study uh, Exodus and you see, you see what, how God took this uh, group of Jews out of Egypt after they'd been there for 400 years, it was the mercy of God recognizing the covenantal promises he had made to Abraham that allowed him to take this group, bedraggled group, a couple million people out of Egypt and bring them effectively to the promised land. That's the mercy of God. Why would God do that? Because God had made promises and God recognized what mercy was about. Uh, and, and, here's, and so he brings them out, right? He brings them out of Egypt. He saves them. He opens up the Red Sea, right? He opens up the Red Sea. And then what do you see happens at the first period of time when, when a little difficulty comes into their life, Moses goes away to get the Ten Commandments, right? You know the story. While he's up there on the mountain communicating with God, they decide, Moses is gone. We need to have a place to worship. We need, let's make a golden calf. Because they remembered their days in Egypt. 
That's what the Egyptians had. Oh, let's go. Let's do what we did before. Let's, let's raise a, a golden calf. Let's build a golden calf. Tur- turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. Here it is, folks. The first commandment. We'll start. Well, we'll look, we'll look at the beginning. God spoke these words, verse 1. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Number one, no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord, your God. I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, that's pretty important, right? There it is. That's pretty important. So what do we do? Let's make an idol. Let's make an idol. Let's do that. Now, let me ask you something. If you were God and and these worthless people were the people that you just saved. You had just given this instruction, and they now ignore it, and now you look down, and they're dancing and worshiping and bowing down. to Well, what would you have done? I could tell you what I would have done. They're gone. There is no more Jewish people. I'll start all over again with Moses. It's just like Genesis, the Garden of Eden. Moses, will start with you. We'll do this all over again. But you see the mercy of God? You understand the extent of the mercy of God, that God forgave them for this, violating the first two precepts that he gives them, separating them from the world, and as they sit there and violate it and look at it, and God forgives them. Why? Because Moses interceded for them. What does Moses say? Oh, God, don't, don't, we'll wipe them out. Because God said to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, no, don't do that. The Egyptians will talk evil of you. It will make you look, you knew God knew all those arguments. He wanted to see the heart of mercy in Moses. You understand? I want you to think about the heart of mercy of Moses. What would I do if I were Moses? I'd say this, good, do it. I'll stand up here, I'll watch, and then we'll start all over again. I can't stand these people. I've been with them two months already. They're driving me nuts. All right? And I know I got a lot of supporters here. I can't take it. You understand? And you see God is testing Moses also. I want to see a heart of mercy. I want to see a heart of love. This is what this is about. This is God from the very beginning demonstrating a heart of mercy unknown in this world. You're not going to see mercy like this reflected in, in humanity. This is only divine where God can look at these incredible violations of his will and his commandments and yet forgive. And you see the heart of mercy uh, in Moses as well. And you see that. And, and so I want you to turn also to Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. This is the second time he's gone back up there. And went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down on the cloud, stood there with him, and proclaimed 
his name, the Lord. So I want you to get this picture. There's Moses, all right? He has the, the commandments again. Uh, he's standing there, and now the Lord has come down, and the Lord is there with him, and the Lord has now proclaimed his name, Jehovah. He has told him that's what his name is. Uh, and verse six, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, and this is God proclaiming who he is. I am he, I am the Lord, your God. And look what he says. This is the words of God. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. How do you like that? The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He has just defined who God is. He is not the taskmaster. He is not the person with the anvil and the hammer seeking to destroy. He is slow to anger. He abounds in love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. He is telling Moses, this is who I am. This is what you need to communicate to the world. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their father to the third and fourth generation. And by the way, I don't want you to think that children suffer for the sins of their father. What that means there, it's a translational issue. It means people that continue to abide in sin. So you're a sinner and you're bad outside of the will of God, then your children do that as well. Then their children do that. And then their children do that. What do you think happens? God punishes the children uh, to, to the succeeding generations. But understand this, he is slow to anger. And when I read the Bible, when I read it, I see it over and over and over again. When I see the example of people violating God's will and God allows them to continue to live. There was a verse that, that relates, I believe it was, to the Amalekites. Uh, and it spoke about the fact that the Amalekites, uh, who had picked off the Jewish people coming out of Egypt, they were despicable people. There they knew that the Jews had not trained for military precision. And so they would sit there at the back of the, of the tribe and pick them off and pick them off and beat them up. And, and there's a phrase in the Bible that talked about the fact why God does not uh, punish them, does not wipe them out. It says, because the time of their sin has not ripened. The time of their sin has not ripened. Meaning what? It means God's got a clock. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love and passion and mercy. And so even in this world, when there are people that shake their fist at him, even in this world where people who revile him and spit at him, he is slow to anger. He's just defined who he is. He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and steadfast in love. This is the God who we worship. This is the evangelism that you need to have. This is how God wants you to go out into this world and go and see the lost and have love for the lost. If God has loved you this way, if God has loved you this way, then how can you not love others in the same way? How can you not? You're saved. Do you remember where you were? Or maybe you have forgotten. Some of us, I think, have forgotten. You know, it's good. It's good. God doesn't want us to reflect on, on our past sins. That's right. But God doesn't want you ever to forget 
the fact that without him, you were lost forever. All right? And you need to remember where you were and what kind of a life you had and now what he's given you and, and, and how every, everything has changed. And so I want you to consider the incomprehensibility of God, his limitless Excellent. His immeasurable strength, his complete perfection and holiness. And now consider that God from all eternity had determined to reveal part of this incomprehensibility and immeasurable uh, greatness to a human being. Does that just blow your mind that God is revealing the true essence of the divine creator to a miserable race of human beings? I told you it would be as if one day you looked down at a school of ants. Oh, and you saw these ants. You said, oh, I love those ants. They're good ants. I think I'm going to become, I'm going to become an ant. Uh, because you know what? If I become an ant, I'll show them the love of God, uh, who I am. And I'll become an ant. Can you just even co- conceive of something so incredible? I mean, it, it, it boggles your mind. That's what God did. He became an ant. He subjected himself to everything that ants feel, that ants endure. That's, that's the greatness of God. And so it's, it is amazing to me to discover that the first thing, the first thing that God reveals to us about his name and character, the very first thing you see is that he is merciful. Why? Because we are not we are not merciful. We are not just. We are not loving. And so as he reveals the divine nature, the divine character of God, you see that, that he is, of all things, he is compassionate. The creator of heaven and earth is merciful. The one who called Abraham and who heard the cries of the slaves in Egypt was merciful and loving. And that's the message today that you need to convey to a lost world. God loves you. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's, it's not about dictates. It's about love. It's about love. It begins and ends with love. Love, compassion, and mercy. Let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much, Father, for the, the words that you've given us I thank you for showing us who you are, Lord, who you are, and how significant mercy and compassion is. Lord, I pray that each of the men in this room will, will leave here with a greater amount of mercy and compassion and an understanding that that's the call on our lives. We don't want to be like the Pharisees sitting there and looking down at others and making prejudgments about others, but we want to be, Father, the kind of person that recognizes that we need you, that we're lost without a, without a Savior, that we are brokenhearted, that we understand the mercy that you've given us and the compassion. Change every one of us, Lord. Fill us with your love and compassion. Protect our men this week and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.